talk a little bit install you guys should be in luck today look look it's new no more short look 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 look. so unfortunately it actually picks up better than the other one so no promises if I actually get loud that it doesn't hurt somebody so hopefully we'll go with this all right let's see how this works can't wait for it right. I am the alpha and the omega the first and the last the beginning and the end Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. But I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come. 
Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your accomplishment, for the punishment due upon us that you have taken upon yourself, for the righteousness that we do not deserve that you have provided, for the promises of life and peace and security. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our hearts and our minds, that we would walk faithfully towards that day, knowing that our peace is not here but in you, and our safety is not in this place, Lord, but with you and in your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, and we pray that all unity may one day be restored, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love, and know we are Christians by our love. We will walk with each other, we will walk hand in hand. We will walk with each other and we'll walk hand in hand. And together we'll spread the news that God is in our land. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. We will work with each other, we will work side by side. We will work with each other, we will work side by side. And we'll guard each one's dignity with each one's pride. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. All praise to the Father from whom all things come. All who praise to Jesus is only Son. And all praise to the Spirit who makes us one. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. All right. Let's see. All right. couple of things. You picked a good day. We have lunch today. <laughs> My kid who doesn't eat anything is excited about lunch. Wrap your brain around that. Go ahead. If you can, you're... He knew we were bringing Doritos. Apparently. <laughs> if only you knew that each every time you do that, a little part of my soul just dies a little bit. <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, that's the, of all the people in the house, guess which one's the most excited about recipes and cooking shows? The kid who doesn't eat anything, loves a cooking show and wants to try everything. Are you going to eat any of that? No. Well, he eats bread. As long as it is a bread, again, for the rest of us, bread and water is a punishment that you get in bad prisons. To him, that's nirvana. So he's good to go. 
So yes, we have lunch. If you did not bring anything, you are still invited. You are welcome. We appreciate it. It's a good chance to get to know everybody. So when service is over today, we have a business meeting. So members, stick around. Quick meeting. We have like two or three things we got to discuss, though, real fast. I know you'll be quick because there's lunch. See how that works? <laughs> Normally, we don't have them on the same day, but it works out this month because we pushed back the business meeting for Mother's Day. Can you believe nobody wanted to have a meeting on Mother's Day? What are the odds? So kept us all from getting in trouble. So that covers those two things. Again, you are welcome. We appreciate it. Um, prayer concerns. If you would continue, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Elizabeth's daughter, Christina, was in and out of the hospital running tests, cardiac issues, asthma issues. She was doing well. They took her in yesterday and did open heart surgery. Turns out a couple of blood clots formed and they had to make sure they got those out of there as quickly as possible. So she is in recovery. She's in Madison. She's mercy. I'm sorry. I asked you earlier. I got that wrong. She's at Mercy. Okay, I'm sorry. That's when you said you had an hour and a half. I'm like, is she in Madison? That's like, Between the two of us, we almost know what's going on. <laughs> so she's at Mercy, but if you would be in prayer for Christina, we'd appreciate it. She is recovering, doing well so far, so hopefully she goes home this week, but who knows how quickly that works. I know in years past with hospitals, it's like, all right, can you walk? Can you breathe? Get out! So I don't know if that's still the case right now. I don't know if they're enjoying not having 17 visitors around because of COVID. So there's no telling on all of that. So if you would be in prayer for that, we would appreciate it. Is there anything else I'm forgetting? Going once, going twice. All right. Now I can get the thing up that I had earlier. In the Sadducees question, how many brothers married the same wife? I heard it. Seven. Say it loud if you know it. Say it loud. Come on now. Now I mentioned in the reason for the question that in Sunday school, I talk about it a lot more than I talk about necessarily in here on a Sunday morning. But even in here, we talk about how you view the world. Ironically enough, called a worldview. The grid through which you run the input of the world. So when you see a news story, how do you process it? How do you understand whether this is good, bad, ugly, and how you respond to it? This is colored by your worldview, your non-negotiable things. If you want to get really technical... Every human being has what we call in logic their a priori assumptions. Those are your first things, your priors. They come before anything else. They are non-negotiable. Every human being has them. What we try to do here on a Sunday and any other time we get an opportunity is influence your a priori assumptions. Influence your foundation so that the ground you're standing upon is biblical and Christian so that it builds up so that as you're confronted with the things of the world, you're not arguing on their turf. You're not arguing their problems, but you're actually confronting the actual issue. Does that make sense so far? The reason why this question is so good at that is do you want to see an awesome example of how you do that? Jesus gives that to you in Luke 20. So, there came to him some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, and they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Leverite marriage is the name. I'm not going to explain it right now. It would take too long. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her. In the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also, probably out of relief. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Do you catch the problem with the question? They don't believe in a resurrection, and yet they're asking about a 
resurrection. So is the question really about this family or is the question about baseline biblical issues? Jesus catches that. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. What was the bigger issue for Jesus? Answering the question or correcting the biblical foundational problem? And he picked up on the problem because he's paying attention. Part of Christian living in this world, I've told you this a thousand times, we're going to keep saying this, Christianity by its nature is a thinking religion. You cannot turn your brain off and be a Christian in the world. You have to evaluate, process, understand, and be ready. This is an example. I'm pointing at my phone now because that's where I just read the text from. So bizarre pointing issues, I'm sorry. I'm Italian. We do this all a lot. He's attacking the baseline issue, and the problem is you're trying to trap me with a bad question. Here's why the question is bad. If you want to avoid the mudslinging in the world, the argument is not up here. The argument is at foundational issues, foundational definitions of who we are and what we're doing. And then what's the most important part of that? Why are we doing it? That's the question, Christian, you must be prepared to answer. If you're not prepared to answer why, you are not prepared to give a hope, give a reason for the hope that lies within you. It's not just what you're doing. It's not just how you're doing it. It is why you're doing it. Here's why. If you get that why right, the what and the how, I don't worry about. Because if your why is correct, your what and your how will take care of themselves every single time. The why is the thing that matters because now you're getting to the heart reason. You're, you're building on that firm foundation. Make sense? Okay. Shh. Don't say this one out loud. What happened to Joseph when he refused to commit sin with Potiphar's wife? I know you know this. Reason for the question. I know I'm a terrible, awful person. I want you to read your Bible. So reason for the question to try to get you to dig in a little bit more, and we'll deal with that one next week. Last chance, anything else before we continue on with worship? All right, then I'm getting out of the way. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His graces? Hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are you garments spotless or the white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are you garments spotless, are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? 
when the bridegroom cometh, will your robe be white, pure and white in the blood of the Lamb? Will your soul be ready for the mansion, bright and be washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are you garments spotless, are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed in the blood and the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? I'll be washed in the blood of the Lamb. One glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away to a land and God bless the shores. I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory. Fly away when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. When the shadows of this life has grown, I'll fly away in the morning, like a bird from prison by the I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away in the morning. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Come on, Bill. Just a few more weary days in there, I'll fly away in the morning to a land where joy shall never end. I'll fly away, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. In the morning, when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Said when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away.
Alright, we've discovered one problem already. I say we like there's more than one of me, but it's me and the other voices in my head most of the day. This comes with a little cover on there, which makes it sound a little nicer, but it adds weight, so it does this. So, we'll see how long before that drives me completely insane. I know you'll all be taking bets. Alright. <laughs> the, um... I finally think I got a bulletin right this week, and then my wife comes up to me and goes, what did you do? I'm like, holding a bulletin. Like, it's right. I know it's right. I checked it three times. She goes, we're not in Exodus? Oh, is that all? <sighs> no, we are not in Exodus. Go ahead. Will the slide work? There it is. We are in Acts. Why are we in Acts? I warned you a few weeks ago. See, who knows why we would be in Acts today? See, leave it to the Presbyterian to know. <laughs> and see, Lou is the only person who will get this. He is a now reformed Presbyterian. Lou gets the theology joke that is in that. So there you go. We're Baptists. Most of you are going, Pentecost? And if you're not a Baptist, you're probably, you probably grew up evangelical, which is mostly the same thing in this country. But yes, Special Event Sunday, we are dealing with Pentecost. We never talk about this in evangelical churches, ever. And you know what? That is to our shame. So everyone, hang your heads in shame. All right, moment over. The reason we don't do this in modern, conservative, evangelical churches is usually one good reason. We're terrified. We are. We, wanted, we have to draw a line somewhere, but we don't know where to draw it, and we don't know why to draw it, so the best thing to do is what? We just never talk about it. We, we, we never do it, and then what we end up, see that right there, I move my head and it starts wiggling. I don't know how you guys don't hear that, but it's smacking me in the side of the head, so I will have a nervous twitch by the end of the day. Now, is that an admirable goal? And the answer is yes. It is for the sake of unity in the church. It is for the sake of not having a fight over what is, in fact, a secondary issue. Is it a wise goal? And the answer is no, not in the least. All right. Theological triage, primary issues, first-level things. You either agree or you're out, okay? You're out of the kingdom. These are non-negotiables. Christ alone, no other way of salvation. If you disagree on that, that's a foundational Christian issue. We can't be friends, okay? Not even a little bit. Um, sufficiency and God-breathedness of Scripture. That's a foundational issue. Things like virgin birth, because it is, goes to the very nature of who Christ is, how he comes into this world, and how that functions, as well as the testimony of Scripture. Foundational issue. Trinity. If you are a non-Trinitarian, you're out. Sorry, we just... These are primary issues. They have to be, they have to have lines drawn on them. Um, I could probably come up with a handful more, but I will stop there. You get the idea. Things that relate to the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, theology proper, the doctrine of God, Christology, the doctrine of, of Christ. These are foundational issues. If you disagree as Christians, you cannot be friends, you cannot have fellowship, you are outside of orthodoxy. With that said, secondary tertiary, and I don't know what the word for fourth and fifth level issues are. So secondary issue would be like baptism. I have an idea about baptism. Believer's baptism by immersion. That's why we got the big old tank up there. That's a Baptist thing. Are Presbyterians, because they do pedo-baptism, evil? No. They are still a part of the kingdom. They are not going to hell for it. I think they're wrong. And you know what? 
they think I'm wrong. That doesn't make either one of us evil. That is not a salvation level issue. Below that even further would be the issue of things like um, mode of church uh, polity, whether your congregational vote or your elder led or your pastor ruled, however that is done. That is like bottom level issue. When it comes to some of the things we'll talk about today in pneumatology, some of them are going to be primary issues, some of them are going to be secondary issues. Hopefully we'll draw the right lines at the right places and explain that, but we, do, we are going to draw the lines. We have to. You can't read your Bible and go, no, I don't have an opinion on that. You want a good example of this? Eschatology. You all have an opinion about what revelation means, how the world is going to end, and what's going to happen. Most of you are wrong, and it's okay. I forgive you. <laughs> I say that jokingly because when it comes to eschatology, we all have an opinion on this. We all have an understanding of Revelation. You should have an understanding, and you should be able to read your Bible and defend your understanding of it, but you should also be willing to look at someone else who disagrees with you and goes, okay, we can still like go to the Cracker Barrel for lunch and be friends. We don't have to form a separate church over this. And believe me, the, it, I'm, what I'm saying is weird in a lot of Baptist churches because people are like, you mean there's something other than pre-millennial, pre-tribulation, rapture dispensationalism? Yes. Yes, there is. There's like 17 other options there, but shh, don't tell anybody. So I tell you all of that to say the celebration of Pentecost is a celebration of the triune work of God. It is the third person, catch the language, of the Trinity and how he works on behalf of his people. I'm going to get that wrong at least once, okay? Don't throw something at me. The natural human inclination is we refer to God the Father as he, God the Son as he, and God the Spirit as it. <laughs> and I have no idea why we do that by nature, but I'm going to do it at least once. Just like wave at me and I'll go, bad me, sorry, and we'll move on. Third person of the Trinity, he, he. It's a person, not some mystical, magical force running around your Bible, but an actual will of God in action. A person with the essence of Yahweh, but an independent person of the Trinity. How that makes sense, I have no earthly idea. We're just going to go with it and hopefully make some more sense of it as we work through. So, rules of your Bible. We cover this every time we do something new. First rule is never read what? Never read one verse. All right, we got that covered today. We got 21 of them, so never, ever, ever, ever read one verse and if somebody does read one verse, stop immediately and read the surrounding context so you know whether they're wrong or not. That's just rule number one. Rule number two, never just airdrop into the middle of a passage or the middle of a book and not know what's going on. Could that be a temptation for us? And the answer is yes, because we're starting in chapter two. I don't know many things in this life, but I do know that two comes after one. Therefore, there is stuff in the book of Acts before where we will start. Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. There is some overlap between the books, but for the most part, Acts picks up where Luke leaves off. I wrote notes so I don't get this messed up. Luke ends with the resurrection, the road to Emmaus appearance by Jesus, where he's walking along the road with the disciples, the upper room appearance back in Jerusalem, the Great Commission, and the Ascension. So there you go. That's a good summary of the end of a gospel there. Acts picks up with the reminder of those things, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the Ascension of Christ, and the replacement of Judas. Remember, Judas runs out and commits suicide, and the apostles, not willing to wait around for Paul to show up, replace him with the casting of lots, with criteria. That would be important for some of the time, but we're not going to go with that now. So with that said, we can now look at Acts chapter 2. So we'll read it, and then go back through it, and try to make sense of it as we go. All right? 
When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking them, saying, They are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right. Back to the beginning. Let's make sense as we go. Good lesson for reading your Bible. If you want to try to put stuff together as we do it, ask yourself questions. When the day of Pentecost had come, time out. What's a Pentecost? Because <laughs> everybody's just like running around at Pentecost, right? Literally means 50th. It is your feast of weeks. Go back to Exodus 34. You shall celebrate the feast of weeks. That is the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year, all your males are to appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. Three feasts. Everybody, all the males of Israel are required to go to Jerusalem to go and sacrifice and partake of the feast. Pentecost is one. If you were following along in your gospel and you know the story, the prior one was Passover, seven weeks prior. The end of the year, well, the end of their year, kind of, be about early fall for our year, the way the calendar usually falls, would be the tabernacles, or the one, the way I refuse to say it, booths, because I can't get to the T-H and the S. That's the New England in me, sorry. So this is the feast. They are gathered together here. They were all gathered together in one place. Who are they? had a friend of mine in church years ago who used to have this discussion. I used to get, could you imagine this? I used to get in trouble all the time. Isn't it just sweet, innocent, little old me used to get in trouble? And the argument was always that they're upset. And I couldn't take it anymore in this meeting. I said, well, who are they? And some, a friend of mine stood up and he goes, it is them. And he stood up, he put his hands in. You had to know Matt. Matt was about yay high and about yay wide. And he goes, it is those that are not us. The meeting was over at that point. <laughs> I wasn't in trouble anymore. I appreciated that. But this is a legitimate question. Who are they? Acts 115. 
At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together. After the crucifixion, everybody scatters, right? Where do you go? I mean, seriously, where do you go? I mean, if you are the disciples, if you are the, well, the 11 at this point, they're not the 12. If you're Mary, if you're the brothers of Jesus, you're the other women that were traveling around, you're the other family members. Like, this was the end of John 6 when Jesus says hard things and all the people of Israel are scattering. And Jesus looks at Peter and goes, will you two leave? And he's like, where would we go? You have the words of life. So they scatter, but at the end of the day, it's been years walking around Jerusalem. This guy is God, and he's teaching. Where, where do we go? Well, we gather back together. And then you have the resurrection appearances. Now where do you go? You're waiting, because he told you what? You go to Galilee, you worship, Jesus ascends, and he tells you what? Go back and wait. So where do you go? Well, go back to the upper room, because I don't know. What are we waiting for? I don't know. But everybody who is waiting is now waiting together. That's who they are. Verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. This is the promise delivered. One of the great things that's, that's fun to, to follow through is the obliviousness of the apostles, which is really comfort for us, because apart from the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, we are hopeless. You know how I know that? Peter, John. James, Nathaniel. These guys are just like, I don't know. I don't know. I've told you before, John describes himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved. I have described Peter as the apostle who put his foot in his mouth. Because every time you turn around, Peter is saying something, you're like, no, but you already said it, and it's too late now. This is promise. Promise fulfilled. They weren't paying attention. We were paying attention to the upper room, though. John 14. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. That helper, the promised spirit, is coming for a reason. John 15. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. That was one of the requirements to be the replacement for Judas, is you had to have been walking with Jesus from the baptism of John. You had to be there because one of the things that gets overlooked, the Holy Spirit doesn't just show up and grab the apostles and be like, now you know. And then they start telling of all the deeds of Jesus. They can tell of the deeds of Jesus. Why? Because they were there. What the Holy Spirit does is brings these things to remembrance. This is part of the promise. This is why your discipleship, let me, let me back up. This is why what we call in theology, salvation is a monergistic work. God saves sinners. It is one directional. What did you bring to the salvation party? You brought sin. What did you bring as far as accomplishing salvation? Nothing sanctification, your walking in righteousness is synergistic. It is working together. So when Jesus tells you that you're going to be arrested, you're going to be brought before governors and princes and all these things, don't worry what you'll say. The Holy Spirit will give you utterance. Is that the Holy Spirit be like, okay, what would be something good for them to say right now? No. It's bringing to mind the things that you have studied, the 
things that you have learned, the things that you have known, so that when the occasion arises, you're like, I knew there was a reason I read that. There it is. The Holy Spirit brings up. This is why your walking matters. If the Holy Spirit has nothing to bring up, is he helpless? No, he's not helpless. But have you damaged your ability to make a testimony, your ability to make an argument, and the work that he will do with you? And the answer is yes. This is how you can actively grieve the Spirit. It's not like you're kicking him out. He's in. He's not going anywhere. But you are making the job harder. On who? You. Always remember that. Now, this is in keeping with what Christ has said. John 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Excuse me. Once. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Why could Jesus explain the Father? Because he had seen him. Why could he explain heavenly things? Because he had seen them. He knew them. He created them. Therefore, he is not just inventing things out of, you know, whole cloth. He's not coming up with this out of thin air. He's going, no, no, I'm testifying to you about the things that I know. This is why Jesus's teaching was different from everybody else. Because when Jesus gets up on the Sermon on the Mount, he starts proclaiming, he's not just winging it. He's telling them, no, this is the intention of God's law. How would Jesus know that? He wrote it. <laughs> he wrote that law. This is why you've got to be very careful. I've had this argument before with Sunday school teachers. That was an interesting day. I didn't get in trouble for this one, though. Don't make a distinction between the Father and the Son. That is too sharp. The same Father who commands the armies of Israelite, the same Son commands those same armies. The Father gives the law. The Son gives the law. It is the law of God. It is the people of God. Jesus is not shocked at who Israel was. Jesus is not surprised by what is contained in the law. He wrote it. You have one essence of God. I try to make this make sense. And if you're like me, things have to make sense in the world. You know, everything has a place. Everything is ordered. This is why I know where my keys always are, because even if I've lost them, there's only like three places on the planet they can possibly be, because I put them in one of those three places, and that's the only answer. If they're not there, someone has done something. When it comes to theologies that are beyond my ability to reason, I struggle because I'm just not wired like that. The Trinity is like that for all of us, because God is beyond our ability to reason. That's one of the actual proofs of God. If I could explain to you every single thing in perfect detail about God, what would you know about him? You would know everything, but what would that say about my brain compared to God's? Mine's higher, because I can explain it. The person who can explain the thing is smarter than the thing, right? The person who can explain to you physics is not confounded by physics. You might be, but they're not. The person that can explain higher math is not confounded by that math. You might be, they are not. They have mastered it. They can understand it and explain it. When it comes to God, we can't. And that's good news because that means we cannot explain that which has made us, which is good. So to try to be as technical as possible, I said this before, I'll, I'll reiterate to try to make sense of it. When we're talking about God, the name of God in the Old Testament given, Yahweh, there is one Yahweh, the essence of what Yahweh is is singular. But within that singular essence, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. All three at their core, at their substance, are God. They are Yahweh, but they are individual persons. If you want me to make sense of it beyond that, I got nothing. But that is just how this is. This is why, again, Jesus can speak with authority, because he is God. This is why he can promise to send the Holy Spirit, because he is God. This is why he can not rewrite the law, but expand upon the law, because he is God. This is why the testimony of the apostles is so important, is because they're not proclaiming things that they do not know. They are proclaiming the things that God has shown them. John makes this point in his first letter. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was, the, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. That's why this matters. That's the fulfillment. Do you know what one of the most unreliable things is in a court of law? Eyewitness testimony. It's one of the most unreliable things about humanity. If you don't believe me, next time you witness a car wreck, hopefully you never do, but next time you do, go grab everybody around you and have them start explaining to you what happened. And you'll be like, no, it didn't. No, it didn't. Or tell a story with your spouse. How many times has your spouse looked at you going, it didn't happen like that? Yes, it did. I was there. No, it didn't. I was there. And then the person listening to the story is going, okay, help me out here, people. Why do we believe this eyewitness testimony? Pentecost is your answer. It is not the power of John's memory that we're trusting in. It is not the power of Peter's vision that we're trusting in. It is not the testimony of James that we're trying to go, yes, that's the thing. It is the spirit-empowered declarations of God. And we're going to get to this more in a minute. The power of memory powered by the Holy Spirit that we trust in. I don't trust it because of John. I trust it because of God. And again, we'll get to that more in a second, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So verse 3. There appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. So each one of them is being marked Why? Who's that, who is that for the benefit of? Not for you, you weren't there. Does God need to mark them visibly? Like he doesn't know who he gave the Holy Spirit to? No, who's that for? The other people in the room. Rewind in your gospel, Matthew 3. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is here. The connection between those two things is later on in the chapter. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Who was the voice for? Did Jesus need it? Jesus doesn't need the voice. He tells you as much in John 12. Jesus telling them, My soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came out of heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd of people who stood by heard it, and they were saying that it had thunders, thundered. But others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, the voice has come not for my sake, but for yours. 
judgment is upon this world and the ruler of this world will be cast out. In other words, the voice comes not because Jesus needs the encouragement, but so that the crowd around will go, oh, I see what's going on here. I'm picking up what you're putting down. I got you. Same thing here. If you have received the Holy Spirit and been empowered by God, do you need to be told? You shouldn't. But how will I know it happened to you? <laughs> Especially here and now in this world. Who do you trust? Hey, well, you know, a month and a half ago that Judas is selling you out for you know a bag of silver here. So verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. All right. Let's draw a line, because <laughs> this is where evangelicals and conservative Baptists start freaking out and panicking. Glossias, or technically glossias, from the Greek word glossialia, that we translate as tongues. The reason we translated that is because the word has 17 meanings, and we try to pick one and go with it. The beauty of language translation is that, just like you, you have more than one word to describe the same thing, right? So did they. We do ourselves a disservice when we try to avoid that. And this is one of these places where the NASB, I understand why they did it and they bug me at the same time because tongues is a technically correct translation, but it is not situationally correct. The word means tongue, uh, but it also means language because what is your tongue there for other than just tasting yummy food? Because remember, we're having lunch today. <laughs> Segway to shameless plug, right? <laughs> Get y'all drooling a little bit. Your tongue speaks. And that's where the word comes into play. Is there a biblical category for words that do not have meaning? And the answer is yes. Yes, there are. I have examples. Genesis 11. The Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. First Samuel gives you another one, chapter 18. It came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved about in the midst of his house. The Bible is very clear that there are two types of speaking. There is intelligible speech. Hopefully I am engaging in that this morning. And then there is babbling speech, that which makes no sense. Where babbling speech occurs in your Bible, do you know what category of life it falls under? Oh, who said that? Oh, brownie points. <laughs> My wife got it right. It's judgment. Why are the languages confused? The languages are confused in judgment. The people are being disobedient to the command of God to do what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and so do it. They're saying what? No, no, no. We don't want to fill the earth. We want to stay right here and build a tower so that our names will be remembered. You're supposed to fill the earth and subdue it so that God's name will be remembered and proclaimed. They're in disobedience. So if you won't do it on your own accord, what will God do? He will accomplish it. How does he do that? The babbling. And even there, though, it sounds like babbling to us because you're now speaking a different language. What is it, though? It's still a different language. Likewise with Saul. When Saul is blessed of God, anointed as king, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, what does he do? All right, Wednesday night people, what does he do? He walks with what group of people? 
He starts to prophesy. He starts to proclaim God, the mighty deeds, the mighty acts, the future works and glory of God. Is there ever a time you will speak more clearly than when proclaiming the works of God? The answer is no. Conversely, when that spirit is taken away from him and the Lord torments him in judgment with an evil spirit, what does he do? He rants and raves about his house, speaking what? Yeah, it's Yosemite Sam says, We don't want to know what he said. You have to do that, like, exclamation point plus star thing in your Bible. Yes. Remember, we talked about this, I don't know, was it last week or the week before last? There is wisdom found where? Godliness. The path of godliness is the path of wisdom. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. So that your, so Solomon is writing to his son that is so that his son would know wisdom to discern a proverb and to walk righteously in the world. James picks up on that in the New Testament saying what? As you're bearing up under the pressures of this world, as you're bearing up under persecution and walking in godliness, what should you ask of God? Mark? You should ask for wisdom. Because if you don't have the wisdom to do these things and know how to walk in godliness, ask of God. And if you are his child, what will he do? He will grant you this wisdom. That is James 1. In God, there is wisdom. Conversely, the inverse law of logic would tell you what? Without God, there is, and we have a word for that, it's foolishness. And I'll say this before, this is one of my favorite things to say, which means if you're living in foolishness, you do what kinds of things? You do dumb things, and what's the rule? Don't do dumb things. Remember, that rule is always in effect for the Christian. Don't do dumb things. Good luck with that. <laughs> I'm talking to me too. This is what we have going on here. The Spirit of God building the church, strengthening the apostles, doing the inauguratory work, the testimony of God. In order to testify to God, what must you do? See, evangelicals, we, we coffee cupped this made-up phrase. Preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Nobody ever said that, first of all, because in order to preach the gospel, you know what you have to do? You have to use words even if you're doing sign language. That is still intelligible speech. It is still words. In order for this group of people to fulfill the mandate to testify to Christ, which is what the Spirit is going to do, empower them to testify what they have seen, what they have heard, and what they know of Christ so that they will proclaim it to the nations. In order to do that, they're going to have to do what? Speak. And speak in what way? In an intelligible way. People are going to have to understand what they are saying. This is why I draw the line on the idea of glossolalia as a as tongues being an unintelligible speech and yes i know there is an argument about the tongues of men and angels paul is making a comparison he's not laying down a theology so i'm not going into that in order to speak you must be understood if you cannot be understood you know what you're not doing you're not speaking no one looks at their child when it's like you know four months old and write that down that amazing so touching we don't do that. Why not? Because it wasn't actual words. It just wasn't. In order to speak, you have to actually be understood. That's how this works. So in order to have an utterance, someone has to understand what you are uttering. Now we get to my proof of that, verse 5. Well, and following. But There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Why are there in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven? See, Deuteronomy 16, 16. 
three times in a year all your mail shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's Passover, the Feast of Weeks, that's Pentecost, Feast of Booths, that is Tabernacles or Sukkot. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. This is an interesting thing for Israel because when you understand the fullness of time in Galatians 4, this is what that's talking about. So um, Galatians 4, 4 and 5, uh, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he may redeem those who were under the law. This is what the fullness of time looks like. Always remember in Israel, most of them never came back after the destruction of the temple. There was what is known as the diaspora. So Israelites living in Israel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, well, sends a general in, wipes out Jerusalem, scatters the people to the, you know, the four corners of the world, and yes, they come back, and you get, um, I hate when names just run right out of my head. Um, Haggai is the prophet. Oh, what's the governor? Zerubbabel. How do you forget a name like Zerubbabel? I mean, come on. Again, grandchildren, nieces and nephews, when they get to kindergarten in four or five years, there are not going to be many Zerubbabels running around. You can just call him Z for short. It'll be a fun, cool name. You know, there you go. So Zerubbabel leading people back. You get Ezra and Nehemiah, the restoration of the temple, the restoration of the city wall, the reestablishment. But the vast majority of Israel never returned. And they had good reason. Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem, build houses, live in them, Plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, become the fathers of sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. Now just imagine. Yes, you're sent off in exile. You're mourning. The temple is burning behind you as you're packing your bags and leaving. And you're dropped off in, you know, Timbuktu or wherever. And then you get this message from Jeremiah. And you follow it. And I have a family. And as my children grow up, I marry off my daughters. And I find daughters to marry to my sons. And I have grandchildren. And I'm praying for the city. And I'm engaged in business. And I'm 70 years of exile go by. And now you're, hey, we can go back. I'm 92. I have great-grandchildren. I, I have a family business that I've handed down through three generations, and I'm friends with the mayor from when I was 45. Where am I going? Nowhere. Where are my kids going? Nowhere. Does that mean we're not faithful to God? No. So what do we do? We plant and we bloom faithfully right here. Israelites did that all over the world. And then as Jerusalem was reestablished, they followed Festivals come in. The population of Jerusalem would, would more than double during festival times. They would go from a few hundred thousand people to over a couple million people. I mean, in a week. They would just come in because it's the festival. This is the time. They're all here. So what happens? 6 through 11. I won't repeat all those people. Do you guys really need me to repeat all of those people again? We read it once. Okay. It's a bunch. It's everybody. They are hearing what? proclamation of the works of God. From who? Or is it whom? Do I have an English teacher present? <laughs> I never know when the whom is supposed to be utilized. I never got that right. Yeah, not worried about it. If I fail my English exam today, I'll be okay. Who are they hearing this testimony from? I don't just mean like Peter and James and John. Like, 
what are these people? Where are they predominantly from, first of all? Think about your geography of Israel. They're from Galilee. Look at Vern reading ahead. You get a, you get a brownie point. You get a stool. Gold star for you. <laughs> you get to be first in line today at lunch. <laughs> it's the only prize I have. I don't know. Until you do something else, then we'll put you at the back of the line later. <laughs> They're from Galilee. Do the people of Jerusalem think the Galileans are just amazingly smart and brilliant people? No. What is Galilee? It's a fishing town. Now, just so we can dispel one myth, because Christmas will come along eventually, and the History Channel will tell you how dumb all the Galileans are. In order to actually have a fishing business, what do you have to be able to do? We have to be able to fish, first of all, but if I can fish, does that mean I can run a fishing business? Yeah, I have to be able to read, I have to be able to write, I have to be able to, you know, to sell, I have to be able to market, and I have to be able to do that in which language in this world? Multiple more than likely, but at least Greek, which would have been the lingua franca, the language of business, the language of the world. Latin won't replace it for a few hundred years. So even these poor, you know, uneducated, quote-unquote, fishermen would have spoke Aramaic, they would have probably read enough Hebrew to be conversant in the synagogue, and they would have been very fluent in Greek, because if you're in Capernaum or any area around there, you would have people from all sorts of places, not to mention they're hanging out where multiple times a year? At a festival with other people, learning, doing business, engaging in trade. They're not complete nincompoops, but as far as the world is concerned, these Galileans, now, I give them credit for knowing Aramaic, some Hebrew, and some Greek. Would you expect them to know, you know, what's going on in Egypt and Libya and Crete and everything else? And the answer is no. All of these different dialects, all of these different languages, and keep that in mind. When we talk about languages, dialect matters greatly. I was nine years old when we moved from Connecticut, middle of town, like on a city block. You know, I didn't know what grass looked like most of the time except for a baseball field. And we moved to the middle of nowhere, rural North Carolina. I came home on more than one occasion going, these people don't speak English. I don't even know what was told to me. And my parents were like, it'll be okay, you'll figure it out. No, no, I won't. <laughs> I eventually did, but it's all right. I remember, that was the late 80s, early 90s. That was before the internet. I didn't know people actually talked like that outside of bad movies. I, I, was, I was indignant in my fourth grade class because a teacher asked one of my classmates if he had copied something off the board in his exact words in the exact dialect. I done jot that down. I was like, what? He what? I was astounded. And, then, and one, of my, one of my friends used a triple negative in a sentence, which I didn't even know you could do. And my, my, this is one of my mother's favorite stories. Cameron could vouch for this one. I was indignant for a week because she didn't correct him. Like, it was one thing to use the negatives incorrectly. It was another thing for your teacher to not correct it. And I was just like, what have you people done to me? So even, lang even local dialects can change entire meanings of words and phrases. Not now. All of these people, Arabs, Cretans, Phrygians, Cappadocians, they're all hearing what they understand. The end of verse 11. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. What is that a message of? See, this is where you've got to be very careful because our first thought is this is a proclamation of mercy. It is not. Rewind in your Bible to something like, oh, let's say Deuteronomy 31. God's telling Moses, write a song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. We do this, right? Why do we, why do we write songs and teach them to children? It's a way they learn. You want to 
You want to get something stuck in your head until the end of time, set it to music. It will stay there. If you don't believe me, start listening to radio, listen to the radio station, have a song pop up. This has happened to me multiple times lately. I haven't heard that song in 20 years. Why am I singing along? Because it sticks up there and it never goes away, ever. You do this for learning. So teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. Hmm. For when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. And it shall come about when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify before them as a witness. For it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their intent which they are developing today. Before I have brought them into the land which I swore. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the sons of Israel. Always remember, that's the first part of the gospel. Bad if anybody ever asks you, I've got good news and bad news, which one do you want first? No, you're wrong. It is biblical to always have bad news first. Because before we look at you and go, God loves you and has died for you. What do we first have to explain? We have to explain why somebody has to die for you. We have to explain why, you're, why that love is a big deal. Because lost in your sin, you go, of course God loves me. Have you met me? Why wouldn't he? I'm amazing. And I say that as someone who grew up in the 80s. I, I, made, I told you guys this story like a month or so ago. To this day, I can still sing um, Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston. Why? Because they made me learn it for my kindergarten graduation. Because that was our theme song. Don't ask me why. Well, I know why. Because it's a pagan anthem. Where was all the beauty and love in that song? It was in me. I am the fruit of all human potential. I am the people I have been waiting for. That's, it's me. This is why everybody gets a trophy. This is why everybody gets a pat on the head and a pat on the back and told they did a wonderful job. And this is the problem. Humanity, when left to its own devices, engages in idolatry of who? Self. Me. I'm awesome. Unless you're you and then you think you're awesome. But I know you're not right because I'm awesome. Yeah, where's John when you need him, right? <laughs> Detroit. <laughs> This is the breakdown. That's why bad news must always go first. This is why the law precedes the gospel. What does the law do to you? What does the song of Moses from Deuteronomy 31 do? It reminds you that God has done these amazing, awesome things for his people. He has taken them out of Egypt. He has crushed their enemies. He has parted the sea. He has provided manna. He has given them water. He has conquered the lands. He has given them this beautiful, good land. And you walked away? What's wrong with you, man? And the answer is, oh yeah, there's that whole sin thing. But now I know what? Now I have a reason to hear the good news. I have been brought low by the law. We do this today. I told you this before. Go look up um, Ray Comfort videos. He does a great job of this. Would you consider yourself to be a good person? Everybody on this planet says what? Yes. Have you ever told a lie? You ever looked at somebody with lust? You ever been angry at somebody in traffic? Congratulations, you're a lying, adulterous murderer. Good job. Go you. And see, by that standard, I am now what before God? I am now guilty. I am now deserving of his wrath and his judgment. Sin abides in me. Now you tell me, but God loves you and has died and taken your judgment upon himself and gives you his righteousness. Ooh, ooh, see, tell me more, because now I have a reason to follow and to believe. That's what Deuteronomy 31 is going on about. That's what this is going on about. 
You know that Messiah guy that you that you guys crucified? Yeah. About that. Let's let's have a chat. That's what the mighty deeds of God were pointing to. That's what the testimonies were supposed to be about. The kingdom was not about David and his descendants. It was about Christ. The prophecies of Moses were not about him and Samuel and Isaiah. It was about Christ. The mercies of God, the festivals were not so you could check off your list, go back to your home, be like, all right, I'm good for another couple months so we go back to the next festival. No, it was about a sacrifice to be offered in Christ. The mighty deeds of God to a people being transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit is judgment because you recognize all that he has done and all the ways that I have fallen short. Gulp. That becomes the problem. So you get human reactions, verse 12 and 13. They all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. But others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. That right there summarizes humanity's true reactions to, to truth so easily. This is, again, why I tell you, foundational issues. Understand what's going on. 1 Corinthians 1. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The answer to that is yes. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, when confronted with truth, when confronted with the reality of who God is and what he has done, this is the typical reaction you're going to get. People are going to go, huh, I wonder what that was all about. Or, that's the sweet wine part. Drunk. Go back to our point. What do we want to establish, Christian? firm foundation. We want to be able to stand with Paul and say what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why not? It's the power of God. For what? Unto salvation. To come full circle, first to the Jew and then also to the Greek. There you go. See, this is why we read Bible verses, because at some point the Holy Spirit's going to go, ooh, that's the one! Got it! This is how this is supposed to be put together. We proclaim Christ. If we try to stand anywhere else, We've lost the foundation. We've lost the anchor. We've picked it up, we've put it on our shoulders and gone someplace else. We are, we are adrift. We have to remember, again, who we are and why we are. It's not enough that I just stand here. I have to know why I'm standing here. I have to be able to evaluate, okay, I disagree with that. Well, why? I don't know, I just do. That's never been good enough not good enough now, it wasn't good enough then, and it's not going to be good enough if God lets it keep spinning for another 5,000 years. That's a problem. Why is it a problem? We'll come back to the definitions. Here's how God has told us this world is supposed to work. Here's how this is supposed to be laid out. When you go in violation of that, see, we have a word for that, and that word is sin. And the wrath of God abides upon all sin. But, see, now you're getting back to the same message preached. You're getting back to the same foundational issues. You're coming back to how do we change the hearts and minds of men by proclaiming Christ. So, verse 14. Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. All right. What separates Peter going, ooh, Jesus, it's good that we're here. Let us build a tabernacle for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. 
or what separates the Peter who says, Jesus? Never, never heard of Jesus. No, I'm not, I'm not from Galilee. I don't know that guy. Or the guy who's trying to take Malthus's head off and is so bad with a sword that he only cuts his ear. What separates that guy from this one? Holy Spirit is here, isn't he? Peter isn't better. God is better. And all of that brokenness is put away in Christ. And all of that broken bravado and false masculinity is now what? It is right bravado. It is right masculinity in service to God. One is service to self. One is service to God. Now it is, I can stand up and I can proclaim what I know, what I have seen, what I have heard. Why? Because I'm better than the rest of you? No, because God has said, start talking. And when God says start talking, what do you do? You start talking. What do you talk about? What did Jesus tell him? I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What's the rock? See, Roman Catholic Church would tell you it's Peter. They're wrong. Why do I say that? Rewind to verses 13 through 16. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, Well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the rock. That's the rock. The testimony that you are Christ. You are of God and you are God. And in you, as John 6 said, we mentioned earlier, are the words of life. In you is the fulfillment of the ages. In you is forgiveness of sin. In you is the source of righteousness. In you is the source of peace. In you is life and life everlasting. That's the rock. So if you're Peter and it's time to get up and start talking, let's start talking about that. These men are not drunk as you suppose, 15, for it is only the third hour of the day. So it's, it's 9 a.m. We can't be but so blitzed. I mean, the day just started. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. I love that. What, is Jesus, what does Peter immediately start talking about? 2 Peter 1. We have the prophetic word made more certain, to which you do well to pay attention to as the lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Know this first of all, foundational thing. No prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own, one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Peter doesn't get up and go, I... I was there hiding in the corner and the, when you were beating him to death. I was there hiding on the other side of the hillside when you crucified him. I was there when he walked on the water, and I was there on the mountain when he glowed with the glory of God. I was there for all of that. He said, no, this is God's word. Foundational issue. This is why I said earlier when I was going through what's primary and secondary, coming up with examples, your understanding of Scripture is a primary issue. Because if you can't stand upon the authority of Scripture, I would really love to know how you have any authority to stand at all. Because you don't. How do I know about Jesus? They put it in a book. Not my musings, not my ideas. They wrote it down. Who are they? Those that are gathered. The apostles, those that walk. Remember, every book of the New Testament is either written by an apostle or a close associative apostle. We won't go through that list again because we're running out of time. But all of them, every single one of them, they're there. And that's why you're Peter. I need to proclaim Christ to these people. How do I do that? 
There's a testimony in Scripture. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. That's what's going on. That's what they're speaking. They're proclaiming the deeds of God. Now, he's quoting from Joel chapter 2. I would like to read you the first verse out of that quote because... Peter left out a thing that I think was important. It shall come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Now stop. Do you have any questions? Think. What, what's your question? It shall come about after this. What? See, there it is. After what? I, I, time out. I have questions. Luckily, your Bible has answers. Go back in the, in the chapter on Joel. Earlier in that section. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. The tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. Rejoice, sons of Zion. Be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain. Vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. Praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. You ready? You get one word, just one. One word to describe that passage. What is it? Because I came up with one. That's salvation. Removing of the curse, the blessings of God, provision, peace with God, peace with one another, provision for all my needs. Isn't that what the kingdom is supposed to look like? Isn't that what blessing truly is? After that, God will pour out his spirit. Well, why can he do this now at Pentecost? Because the that has been accomplished, hasn't it? Where was it accomplished? Christ. Christ upon a cross. Death has been defeated. Sin has been conquered. Righteousness is available. Sin is atoned for. My sin. All those who will believe. All those who might be put to shame because of our iniquity are no longer put to shame. But in Christ, we stand before God. In Christ, we stand righteous. I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to worry about. I have provision. I have plenty, and I have security. I have all that Joel is describing. That's why the Spirit can now be poured out. That's also why Peter continues for his audience, because they know that. They understood this. I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. That sounds like a really good band name, doesn't it? Isn't that a good college band name? It's blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Ah, crazy college death metal. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, question. For those of you that know enough about your book of Acts and the rest of your New Testament, has that happened yet? Has there been blood and fire and vapor of smoke? No. That comes when? That's the day of the Lord. The day when Christ shall come and time shall be no more. There's like a song about that or something. 
<laughs> Terry's like, I know that song. <laughs> Why include that here? Same reason that Deuteronomy 31 exists. The same reason why we still proclaim the law to one another and to ourselves. Why do I turn to God? Because I know what? I need salvation. Which means I know what? That I've sinned. That I have walked in iniquity. That I have strayed from the path that he's laid out. That I need help. This is a reminder that yes, God has delivered salvation in Christ. And yes, you're seeing the fruits of that as the Spirit is coming upon you. But know what? There is still coming a day of judgment, a day of wrath. But in the midst of that day of wrath, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a gospel presentation in Christ. And Peter is going to go on to lay out, we couldn't cover it all in a morning, Peter's going to go on to lay out what? Who this Jesus is, how he accomplishes the salvation, and what you need to do in the light of it. Because that's what happens at the end of his speech, as they all look at him and go, we're sorry, what do we do? Repent and trust in Christ and his work. That's the punchline, because that's what all of this work of the Spirit is about. This is why our worship services look the way that they do. This is why, in a conservative evangelical church, we try to do things decently in order. Because we want the message to be the main thing. Because what does the Holy Spirit want? He wants the message to be the main thing. The Son does what? The Son glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. The Father and the Son send forth the Spirit who does what? Who testifies to what? The work that the Son has accomplished. Well, now when you're looking at the Son, what does He do? He glorifies the Father who glorifies the Son. And the Holy Spirit strengthens that testimony and points you to the Son. And now you look at the Son. You, you see how this cycle keeps going? This is a cure for the vicious cycle of sin. It's the cycle of righteousness. The strengthening of the Holy Spirit, the encouragement of sanctification, the pointing you back to Christ who shows you the work of God, who shows you the sacrifice of Christ, who shows you the testimony of the Spirit, who shows you the beauty of God, who shows you the glory of Christ, who shows you the strengthening of the sanctification. This is a feedback loop you want to get lost in because this is how we walk. This is the cooperative part. Is God accomplishes this and we look at it and go, okay, I'm in and I walk. And I follow. And as I'm doing this, he strengthens me more and more and more. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you what? The desires of your heart. Well, if I'm delighting myself in the Lord, what are the desires of my heart? Him. So as I delight myself in him, he gives me what I want, which is him, which makes me do what? Desire him more, which makes him do what? Give me. <laughs> See, and now I have no loss. I have no lack of gain. And I'm walking faithfully. I'm weeding out the problems of life. I am putting to death the sins that corrupt. I am pushing aside the darkness. I am walking faithfully my path to the kingdom where despite what goes on in this world, I am grounded and I am secure because it is God that secures me. This is what the Holy Spirit accomplishes. This is why we took time today to celebrate this day and to be reminded of it because this is the work that the Holy Spirit does still to this day. If you have a struggle in your sanctification, if you're struggling with joy, peace, security, you have a worship problem. That doesn't mean you have a problem with songs on Sunday morning. It means you have a problem with how you're living, a problem with what your anchor is, what your foundation is. So what do I do? Well, I recognize what Christ has done for my sin, and I ground myself in that. And he points me to the great work of God. The Holy Spirit then comes, 
and he strengthens me with the testimony of the word and in prayer and spurs me to action. And the more that I do that, the more that I focus myself upon Christ, which reminds me of the great works of God, which gives the Holy Spirit that much more fuel for the fire that strengthens me along my path. This is how we live and how we walk. To forget that, to forget that, is to forsake the tools that God has given. And I told you before that if you give me an hour on Sunday, and even if you get Sunday school and come on Wednesdays for men's Bible study, you need me three hours a week, you know how little I'm going to accomplish in this world? I can't do it. You spend too much time around too many other wicked people. It just is what it is. Outside of this place, that's the truth of all of us. But as I'm strengthened for what goes on here, and as I'm walking in godliness out there, and as I'm preparing my heart and my mind for action, and I'm thinking through these things in a godly manner, I am taking the means that the Holy Spirit is using, and I am building upon them. And I am constructing a grid, a worldview, a foundation, whatever terminology you want to use. I feel like I'm at a bad corporate boardroom meeting. And that thing is the grounding that the Holy Spirit uses. It is the strength it is the weapons. It is all of life so that I can stand firm. It doesn't matter what they do out there. I can stand faithfully. I can proclaim what is right when I see what is wrong. And I am not tempted and I am not influenced because I have the better thing. That starts with understanding who God is and what he has done, why he has done it, and how that matters to you. Christian, ground yourself in the word. Ground yourself in the testimony so that the Holy Spirit, as he's doing his job, can keep feeding that flame and keep building you up in godliness because that's how we're called to live. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the consistent testimony of the word. We thank you for the blessings of history, for the people that you have strengthened down through the ages, for the work that you continue to do. Lord, renew our minds. Open our hearts and our spirits that we would receive your word willingly. That where we are lacking, you would build us up. And where we are ignorant, you would make us knowledgeable. That that which we are not, we would become. So that we would be your people, called by your name, walking faithfully towards your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because He's given Jesus Christ His Son. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because He's given Jesus Christ His Son. And now let the weak say, I am strong. And let the poor say, I am rich because of what the Lord has done for us. And now let the weak say, I am strong, and let the 
Yes, we have lunch, but members, stick around real quick. We have a couple things we have to vote on for business meeting. One of them is about spending some money, so please stick around. Um, if you're not sticking around for the meeting, you can just head on down. I don't know if they'll let you start without us. I think we got somebody guarding something. <laughs> um, if you'd be in prayer for Elizabeth's daughter, Christina, again, recovering from surgery, she would appreciate it greatly. And let's pray. Again, Lord, as we prepare to leave, we ask that you would again strengthen us, that as we walk, that we would remember one another, Lord. We would walk faithfully as a community of believers, trusting in you, knowing that here is our security, and in you is our strength. In Christ's name we pray, amen.